Hello, I'm Drew Evans, and welcome to Episode 2 of the Rock Photography Museum podcast. Our regular format for the show is to pair up music photographers with their subjects for an informal conversation, almost as though they've run into each other in an airport bar while waiting for a flight. You, the listener, are the fly on the wall for the chat that follows. Episode 1 featured photographer Alec Byrne, trading tales with legendary singer-songwriter Graham Nash about life in swinging 60s London. For episode three, which we'll release in early 2022, we'll have Michael Greco speaking with Tina Weymouth and Chris France from Talking Heads. For this current episode, episode two, we have something a little different. I met veteran music journalist Joel Selvin last year when he wanted to license some rare photos of Brian Wilson for his great new book, Hollywood Eden, which came out earlier this year. Many people know Joel from his weekly column in the San Francisco Chronicle, which ran for close to 40 years. He has also written nearly 20 books about pop music, published countless magazine articles and interviews for Rolling Stone, Melody Maker, and others, and contributed liner notes to dozens of albums. While telling Joel about RPM, I mentioned the podcast and wondered if there might be a way for him to get involved. Not long after, he suggested I make a recording of him catching up with his old friend, Chester. Chester Simpson is a highly sought-after Washington, D.C.-based photographer whose current work runs the gamut from corporate events, portraiture, and annual reports to advertising and editorial assignments. Years ago, however, Chester cut his teeth shooting music in San Francisco, beginning in the early 70s, where he and Joel found themselves running in the same circles. After freelancing for years for magazines like Rolling Stone, Chester moved back east and eventually was hired to travel the globe with the USO, a gig which saw him photograph scores of artists ranging from Clint Black to LaToya Jackson on over 30 tours. Today's conversation begins at the beginning, as Chester recalls arriving in San Francisco for the first time and the bit of kismet that would lead him to find his mentor, someone who, as it turned out, happened to be the greatest rock and roll photographer of them all. I just had a little radio, so I cut on the radio that Sunday morning, and they said, free concert in Golden Gate Park, Starship and the Grateful Dead. I said, come on, let's go. I said, Was so, that that concert, that big concert in 75 at Lindley Meadows? Yes, yes. <laughs> wow, what a place to walk into. So I've been on my way backstage. I didn't know anybody. I had my one camera, one lens, a couple rolls of film. And there's this van back there, this uh, grayish van with all this marijuana smoke coming out of it. So I wanted to smoke some weed, so I went up there and knocked on the van door, and the van door slid open a little bit, and the smoke comes pouring out. And I hear a voice in there that says, can we help you? I says, yes, can I have some of that? So they slid the door open and says, get in. So I got in, they shut the doors. Jerry Garcia, Bob Weir, and two Hells Angels in there. And they hand me this little skinny joint. I said, this has got to be the skinniest joint I've ever seen. Well, they said, it's Thai weed. I didn't know what Thai weed was, you know. So we smoked that, and then somebody... Knocked on the door, said, Jerry, time to go on stage. So Jerry said, let's go on, I'll go on stage. They said, come on. He says, you can stand right behind me, right behind the speakers and everything. So I did. I went up there and was taking all these great shots of Jerry while he's tuning up his guitar and drinking Cavassier there. And I saw this guy floating around, um, being very meticulous about where he stood as the concert began and capturing the, the height of the excitement of the, of the action that the show. I said, gosh, and the guy had Leicas around his, and Leicas are the Porsche of cameras. So I, I watched him, I took pictures, and then um, at the end of the show, he was back there behind the stage talking to some people. I went up and introduced myself to him, and I said, look, I've come here to go to art school to learn photography, but I know I can learn a lot from you. I said, I'll sweep your floors, I'll make your coffee. Just let me work in your studio and everything. All right, here's my name and number. And so Jim Marshall, right down and everything. Says, yeah, call me up. So, all right. So I called him up every day for two weeks. Today's not a good day. All right. I'll, I called him up the next day. Finally, after two weeks, he says, all right, get your shit and get over here. So I got him a little box of eight by 10 black and white prints and went to his house, knocked on the door. He said, you want some coffee? I said, sure. So he said, go on in, sit down. So I go down this hallway with all these classic shots on the wall. And I sit down at this little table there, and uh, he brings me coffee. And then uh, says, let me see your stuff. So I give him the box of prints. He looks at it. I had like about 25, 8 by 10 black and white prints in there. And he says, you got some good stuff. He said, 
but this is unfinished work. He said, I should rip it up in front of your face. He said, you, did, you forgot to spot your prints. And so what it is, when you put a negative in a negative carrier, um, if you have a speck of dust on the negative, it prints out as a white dot. And so you have to take a spot toner and a brush and spot that out. And so I was showing him prints where I didn't spot out the, the white dots. And he this said, this is, me up. This yes, is how many years do you think Marshall had been uh, out of the dark room by then? Well, I heard like, he never printed his own work. Never. <laughs> <laughs> he, he always had a printer print his work, you know? <laughs> so he said, yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine how much abuse that guy absorbed? <laughs> and uh, so anyway, he says, yeah, he says, if I ever see your stuff on a gallery wall and you don't spot it, and uh, I'll just rip it off and, and rip the photograph up in front of your face and everything, because that's unfinished work. I said, all right, I learned the lesson here. Thank you. So I, I came back and, uh, you know, he called me up or his wife would call me, hey, come on over for dinner. And I get to hang out with them, have dinner and talk shop and talk other things. And get to go to his file cabinets and see. And he, he told me, he said, now start right now. Start organizing your proof sheets and your negatives. Write the date on the back and everything. Because years later, people will want, will want some of these photos. And he, he's the one that told me, he says, this punk rock scene is starting to happen. And he says, you should go and take pictures at, at the Mabuhay Gardens and everything. I said, well, these bands aren't very famous. He said, they will be one day, you know. He said, take some group shots of them backstage and take some live shots of them. Those are the most important things. All right, good. Now, when you met Marshall, did you know who he was? I, when I got to his house, the name rang in my head. And then when I got to his house and I saw all these classic photos, I, I saw these in Rolling Stone magazine. And I'm the one that uh, went to Tower Records after I met him. And I brought him a BAM magazine. And they had a couple of his pictures in there. And I don't think they put his name on them. Right. And he got real furious. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's how I met him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, he, he talked to them, and they became friends and stuff. And uh, they couldn't pay him, so they would give him stereo equipment or something like that. And one time, uh, Dennis from BAM Magazine called me up and said, would you go over and talk to Jim? I said, wow, what's wrong? Well, we couldn't pay him, so we gave him some stereo equipment. He didn't like it, so he shot it with his gun and threw it out his window. <laughs> <laughs> so can you talk to him for us i said sure sure and i went over and saw jim and smoothed things out you, you know his his bark was uh he's he was you know like a bulldog sometimes he'd scare people frighten people and he always carried a gun with him you know sometimes too yeah <laughs> and a knife he had that belt there he could pull his belt off and that was a knife <laughs> you know jim told me this uh that he says this publication published one of his photos. It was Rolling Stone magazine, and they didn't put his name on it. And uh, Roger Block, the art director at the time, he says, I've forgotten left the name off of a photograph. It was published in Rolling Stone magazine. And then uh, five days later, the photographer shows up with a gun. <laughs> and I was underneath my desk begging for my life, promising I'd never publish another Jim Marshall photograph without his name on it again. <laughs> yep, I met I met Marshall when the Chronicle uh, uh, ran one of his photos without his permission or paying. <laughs> yeah, they, they they assigned me to go negotiate with him. I was 22 years old. I'd just been starting work at the Chronicle, and I said, "Well, can I take him out to lunch and buy my own lunch?" And they said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Put it on the expense account." So I took him out and I said, look, you know, we sat down to eat. And he starts it. I go, wait a minute. Here's the deal. They want me to offer you a hundred bucks. I don't care whether you take it or not. This is just a free lunch for me. So as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> fuck them. Fuck you. <laughs> and, and we were friends for life. <laughs> yeah, he used to call me hillbilly. Hey, hillbilly, get over here. <laughs> shit, get over here. I mean, he, he called me up one day. And he says, uh, you still got that who shit? You photographed them. I said, yeah. He said, well, get your shit and get over here. Get the black and whites and the, and the uh, slides and get over here. So I'll go over and knock on his door. It's you, Hillbilly. Come on in. <laughs> and then he says, Hillbilly, here's Roger and Pete. Uh, they want to look at your photographs you took of them a couple years ago. Roger, Daltrey, and Pete Townsend were sitting there having bourbon with Jim Marshall in his place. You never know who's <laughs> going to be over his place. <laughs> but, well, you know. 
I did a bunch of books with with, with Jim Marshall, a bunch, and and uh, the best Marshall book idea that never happened was we were having lunch with a book editor, and we're talking about his bird photos, and there's a lot of people flipping Marshall off in the in front of the camera. It's just you know he evoked that in people. <laughs> Uh, he's got Jerry and Mountain Girl. He's got the he's got the Almond Brothers from that session that produced the Almond Brothers uh, live at the Fillmore East, all flipping him off. <laughs> he's got the Johnny Cash. He's got the Bill Graham. I mean, and I said, well, let's just do a photo book called Birds, and 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 <laughs> and, and and just and I'll have photos of that. And I swear to God, that book editor would have given us a contract in lipstick and cocktail napkins. But Marshall <laughs> is going, no, no, I want, no, no, I want, I want to dream of it. You know, it's like, what the fuck, Jim? This is free money. <laughs> it's got to be like, you know, his professional dignity was at stake. <laughs> yeah, he could be incredibly difficult and abrasive, and, and he could be really wrong. And 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 he would hold to that wrong opinion, like, I mean, he was just the epitome of a difficult person. But he was such an incredible artist. And and if if you've gone through those proof sheets, you know. Oh, uh, okay. And you never cropped a Jim Marshall photo. No, no, no. And they they ne there's never anything that isn't composed, in focus, and presentable every every frame on 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 the proof sheets are and and what he would do is he would fill an assignment he'd grease pencil the 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 hero shot and then he'd never look at the proof sheets again right yeah, yeah, uh -uh. And, and so i'd go back into the proof sheets and i'd go whoa marshall what about this he goes well that's pretty good shot selvin you know <laughs> and uh i was the one that convinced him that we could sell a book of his proof sheets which we did uh, it was called Proof, and has like a proof sheet on one side, and then the grease-penciled photo on the other side. The yeah. hero, as he called it. Uh, and and in the introduction, I, I I said that Richard Avedon would never do this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but you know, people got to re remember that was before autofocus cameras. Those, those Leicas did not have light meters in them. He had to use a handheld light meter. You know, but like you said. Every shot in the proof sheet was right on, was sharp as a tack, and well exposed, you know? It's an astonishing thing, and I used to ask him about it, and, and even he didn't know. Uh, because the, the thing is, and you know this better than, than, than anybody that just looks at him, the art of photography is an art of anticipation, right? I mean, the, the, the last thing you see before you pull the trigger is the, the thing just before what you take the photo of. Right. Yep, yep. And Marshall has this unbelievable instinct for pulling the trigger right before the target emerges. And I would ask him about this, you know, and he was aware of of the instinct, but he couldn't articulate anything about it. It wasn't some technical thing that he honed. It wasn't some skill that he rehearsed. It really was just a connection between his eye, his gut and his finger. Oh, you know, and, and he was self-taught, too. Okay? Oh, totally, yeah. You know, and to learn all that. And, you know, and then he and he would always introduce me to other photographers. And he said, Chester, he says, I'm not worried about you or anybody else because you don't see things the way I see things. So I can't take pictures like you and you can't take pictures like me. It's like we have our own signature. He says, so you're competing with yourself. And he was so right, you know. And and he also told me, he says, he says, Chester, he says, when these artists allow you to come backstage and be in their space there and everything, don't ever take a picture of, of an artist like picking his nose or doing you know something bad. Oh, yeah, I can make a lot of money if I sell that of Janice Joplin picking her nose. He said, that's not where it's at. You, you show these artists respect, you know? I, I, I'm coming from the guy who shot the photo of Janice looking up her skirt with the bottle of uh, Southern Comfort. But uh, <laughs> in a sense, that was respect. I mean, he, he, he photographed Janice as she was, not as she wanted to be. And he's one of the few that did. And she appreciated that about him. She did. Yeah. yeah. Well, he, he told me with that. He said that photo session and everything. What he did, he put a, a strobe light in the corner just to add fill light, fill the whole room up with light. 
And he says, a lot of people tell me, he says, that makes Janice look bad. I say, fuck them. Janice loved the shot and everything. So fuck, they go fuck themselves. So he's, that was his common language. He always like, they go fuck themselves. <laughs> but he said, Janice loved it, and that's good enough for me, you know? Uh, Jim was an amazing guy, you know, palled around with Miles Davis and, and, and Dylan and, and, you know, he was obnoxious, abrasive, but he, everybody that, that, that he admired, that he respected, loved him right back. It, it, it was rather remarkable that way. And, and yeah, he, 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 he was smart to point you toward the punk thing. Uh, he, he didn't shoot much of that stuff, but he, yeah. was at the, he was still at the top of his game then. He, he kind of petered off shooting. Thanks to, you know, his drug habit after that. Yeah, he, he also, um, you know, he made some enemies. Uh, he burned some bridges like uh, he was shooting Peter Frampton. You know, Frampton comes alive, you know, and Frampton's manager went to Bill Graham. So what I heard is he went to Bill Graham and said, who's this guy? And you know, I want him off the stage and everything. And Bill said, he said, you got to leave, Jim. And Jim got really upset with that, you know. And also Jim. And then, and then years later, when Frampton is at the uh, baseball park with his coronation concert, Marshall takes the best picture that's ever taken of Frampton. From <laughs> <laughs> the cover of the latest Jim Marshall book. Yeah. It's in Frampton's book, too. Uh -huh. Yeah, that's Marshall for you. But, you know, he knew everybody. He really did, you know, and it was just just fun to hang out with him here and hear stories and everything, you know. Oh, the stories were endless. But you know what I discovered uh, after after Jim's uh, uh, death was that uh, everybody who met Jim Marshall came away with a Jim Marshall story. <laughs> I mean, you could do a book just on the stories that people, you know, how they met him and everything, you know. I toasted him at his 70th birthday party and, and asked everybody, when did this guy become a beloved old man? <laughs> <laughs> but he did. He well, did. Well, I, um, I got him a show here in Washington, D.C. at a gallery in Georgetown. And uh, so he came out port and flew out, and I was going to go pick him up at the airport. And like an hour and a half before I was to go pick him up, uh, the gallery owner called me and says, Chester, um, we found out the photographs we got. It was what it was, was uh, these lawyers for Jimi Hendrix had put together this show and found these selected photographs by different photographers. And so it was a group show of different photographers all about Jimi Hendrix. And the gallery owner says, we unpacked this and went to frame it. And we realized that they had made copies of Jim Marshall's photographs. So they had copied even his signature. God. And, and see, this show had toured all throughout Europe before it came to the United States, and they had listed not many sales of prints. Well, what they were, they were selling copies, okay? And the gallery owner says, I have the original ones that Jim signed, because I, I took him up to New York to meet Jim. And uh, he says, we're going to replace these, take the copies out and everything. He said, but can you not bring him here for a while? We, we need like another two hours to get all this stuff in place. Okay, so I got some friends, listed some friends. Let's go pick up Jim Marshall. We picked him up. And yeah, he let's you know, I said, come on, we gotta go by this bar first. You know, <laughs> so I took him by this Irish bar and had drinks. He said, Well, I want to go see the show. I want to go I said, We will, we will. You know, kept stalling, kept stalling. and I call up uh, the gallery owner says, You got the prints up? He said, We got him, got him up. I said, Okay. So he's staying at this hotel uh in georgetown near urban outfitters so we i go there and uh right across the street is the store urban outfitters and they had the uh jim marshall's photograph of johnny cash shooting the finger on t-shirts and displayed in the front display and he's oh gosh he's i gotta go over and get some t-shirts before we go to the gallery show it's all right so he goes over and he said look at it they don't even have my name on them. He says, I'm going to get the profit off every one of their T-shirts because this is a copyright <laughs> image. <laughs> he says, and then when I get finished with them, then Johnny Cash's estate is going to go after them. <laughs> so anyway, we, we go to the gallery show. And, uh, of course, everybody wants to meet say, him. You know, you know uh, that T-shirt is so amazing. Do you remember the Arab Spring when, like, 15 young people overthrew the Egyptian military dictatorship, what, about 10 years ago? They had a photograph on the front page of the New York Times of the guys that did it, and one uh -huh. of them was wearing that T-shirt. 
I mean, no matter where you go, uh, no matter where you travel, people be selling those T-shirts. I mean, in Venice. Uh, in Marshall Colorado, thought it was the most bootlegged photo of all time. Yeah, yeah, I, th I think it is. I think it is. Anyway, yeah. back to the gallery. Okay, so we, you know, everybody wants to meet Jim Marshall. They got several news, local news crews there and everything. And he tells the gallery, he says, don't you have anything to, for me to drink around here? <laughs> he said, well, no, I don't. He said, well, we, we need some, uh, we need, we need some uh, bourbon out here. How about uh, some Rebel Yell? I want some Rebel Yell because he couldn't get that on the West Coast. And uh, every time I'd come back to, to Roanoke for Christmas, he'd always request that I bring a couple of bottles of Rebel Yell back for him. And also I brought him some moonshine one time. So anyway, he um, they sent a runner, had, had some people uh, bring him some uh, some Rebel Yale there, and so he's drinking some Rebel Yale and everything. He's being interviewed. Uh, the gallery owner, after gallery show was over with, uh, Jim's hotel was only like about five blocks away. So he came, that was on a Friday night, so he came back on a Saturday, hung out at the gallery, and the gallery owner told him that, um, showed him the duplicates that they had got. And he went ballistic. About I mean. He called up the lawyers, and he says, you know, he says, I want you to mail me a check for, for $9,000 or something like that for my time and effort and everything. I found out you were selling my, my uh, selling copies of my original work over in Europe and everything, and I'm going to tell all the other photographers. So, but if you don't want me to tell them and you want to tell them, you send me this check, FedEx it to me, so I get it the next day. So they did. They FedExed him a check and everything. And then it gradually came out what they had done and everything. So. Well, he was vigilant in protection of his copyrights, that's for sure. Gucci, no. Uh, one of those big fashion brands, uh, Calvin Klein, that's it, uh, had a ad campaign that used one of Marshall's photos in the on the wall behind the fashion uh, uh, <laughs> models. Oh, gosh. And he went berserk. And uh, they coughed up 10 grand real quick. And this w coincided with our putting out the Monterey Pop book. I, I, I provided text to his Monterey Pop portfolio. This is like 1993 or something like that. We may have been a little bit ahead of the whole rock nostalgia thing. But uh, the fact is, we couldn't get much media attention. And the only, and the only thing we had booked was uh, Michael Vossi, I don't know if you remember him, over at uh, uh, Channel 4, was going to do an interview with Jim. Mm -hmm. And Jim got the $10,000 check on a, a Monday, and the interview was Saturday, and he went underground on Tuesday. <laughs> and, and, and nobody could find him, and it was before cell phones, so there's none of that. And the publicist was just, oh, my God, what are we going to do? Uh, so Saturday morning, Vossi shows up and rings Marshall's bell and he answers the door and he's got a blood soaked rag sticking out of one nostril. Yeah. Well, you know, he got the 10 grand and he went and got an eight ball. Then he got another eight ball. Then he got another eight ball. He really hadn't been too much to sleep and, and he'd blown out his sinuses. And so, so th they talked about it and decided to do the interview and profile. <laughs> <laughs> he went on tour with the Stones for Life magazine. And he said, they had crappy Coke. He said, all their friends would get it and cut it and, and hike up the price and sell it to them and everything. So he said, I got pharmaceutical cocaine and turned them on to that. And if you read Keith Richards' books, he talks about that. You know, because they say, well, how can you keep doing all these drugs and and still surviving and he said well because we were doing pharmaceutical cocaine <laughs> i mean I've, I've never seen a guy at age 72 he tells me that he stopped using drugs and i said really uh, are you still armed and he reaches down and pulls his derringer out of an ankle <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know he had that little problem um you know uh when they raided his apartment on union street and he had those teflon coated bullets so he had to go to jail for a while and, uh, you know, just on the weekends and everything, you know. Well, and, then they were shooting his wife's girl, a boyfriend, too. That didn't go over so yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. He told me about that. Um, he says, yeah, I came home and caught my wife in a, in a bed with this guy and I pulled the pistol out of the 
dresser drawer and shot the guy in the ass a couple times. <laughs> I'm not sure it was quite a flagrante delicto. Uh, the incident <laughs> took place in the hallway outside the oh, apartment, okay. and the, the wound was in the the stomach. Uh, and, oh. Uh, Marshall uh, told me that it was a ricochet. That that oh. you know, the, the, he wanted to scare the guy, and 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 he shot down at the floor, and it bounced up and hit him in the, the gut. Oh. <laughs> uh, and and then threatened the guy if he brought charges. <laughs> but. Yeah, you know, where have we heard this before? You know, successful artist, unsuccessful human being. Uh, he uh, was an amazing photographer uh, and and the best of all of them. I, I went to Baron Woolman's uh, book signing uh, the few months after Jim passed. And uh, I saw Baron and I said, hey, Baron, Jim Marshall dies. Everybody moves up one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and Baron didn't do drugs, you know. I mean, he told me, he said, you know, Jim would be a little bit crazy about stuff, and he said, but I just never did that stuff, you know. <laughs> no, Baron was remarkable in his own way. Yep. And um, uh, 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 amazing. But you know, you landed in San Francisco, and at, at at a time where the the whole city's rock scene was completely in transition, right? Because the old hippie, the hippie old guard was sort of getting, you know, moldy, and, and the 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 new breed was kind of a, a a sleeker, more modernized thing, you know, the Journey, Huey Lewis, Pablo Cruz deal. Yeah. And and the punk scene was the real underground. Yeah, yeah. There was there was so much great music going on. I mean, uh, and what I did, I started, uh, like I said, I was going to art school. And I went to Rolling Stone magazine and showed them my portfolio, you know. And uh, they said, well, you got some good work here, um, but we like photographers with ideas. I said, all right, you give me your card and I'll call you up with ideas. And so I had uh, been to a free concert in uh, Parkside Park, I think it was. Uh, Hot Tuna played there. And, uh, and they had the old burgers car in the back, you know, with the burgers license plate and everything. So I... I had, I've always admired Jack Cassidy and Yorma, so I went up to Jack and I said, hey, can I get a portrait of you beside your car? So he posed for me. And uh, so then I, when I got the shot and I processed the film, I got the shot and everything, and I called up Rolling Stone Magazine, what about Hot Tuna? And they said, well, we're going to um, we're gonna be doing, doing a story on them in a couple of weeks and everything. I said, all right, so bring your stuff by in a couple of weeks. I was there the next day with my photograph, so I got my first picture published in Rolling Stone magazine then because of that. And so I just I just kept on it, and then I started working for BAM magazine, the Berkeley Barb, uh, Bay Guardian, and uh, besides working for all the little local papers in San Francisco, I um, would always pick up the NME, okay, because I could read about bands because that came out weekly, and I could read about bands and stuff. So I just wrote them a letter in the seventies. And I said, you know, um, I'm a photographer in San Francisco, and I cover a lot of bands and uh, punk bands and stuff like that. So it's okay. Well, you send us some prints and things you're doing and everything. And then before long, they started like contacting me for assignments and stuff. Hey, Susie and the Banshees going to be out there, or the Clash is going to be out there. They're going to be at Monterey, uh, the Monterey Festival. Can you go for it? Sure, sure. And so that gave me another inroad. Okay. And then so I got Michael Goldberg and said, Michael, I said, I need a writer to come with me on some of these things to write for NME. And so he did. And uh, that's how we worked together. Uh, and then and I Rolling just Stone was still in San Francisco at that point. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So you just and walk Annie in. Was, Annie Leibovitz was shooting for him. Yep. Yep. She was. And she went to the audience, too, where I went to school. So she's an alumni member there. But, you know, you know, I was constantly on the go doing things. I mean, I can remember... I came back to my apartment to get my camera gear, and Michael had met this girl down at Fisherman's Wharf, long-haired hippie girl. She's barefoot, you know, sort of blondish hair, and and she's I come in to get my camera gear. And she's well, you're the photographer. You got some great shots. You should do my my next album covers or or do photos for my next album. I'm here in uh, San Francisco recording it. I said, yeah, sure, okay, yeah, when you get some money, you tell me and call me, I think. So Michael took her to the Dead Kennedys, I think, were playing at the Mabuhe Gardens that night. So anyway, we, um, you know, she she liked the show and everything and went on her way and everything. That was Ricky Lee Jones, okay? Ah. 
<laughs> and I just brushed her off. Oh, yeah, when you have money, yeah. <laughs> Call me up sometime. <laughs> and, and I also worked with Howie Klein. And then uh, one one time um, he says, oh, Chester, he says, I booked the mutants and the cramps at the Napa State Hospital. So we're going to do a show. <laughs> and the Napa State Hospital just wants a band, some bands to play. They don't it, was know men, it was a mental institution. Yes, yes. And that was in the day of, of involuntary hospitalization. Yeah. So a lot of people were up there just because their parents thought they were problems. And they just put them on Thorazine and stuff. So they had glassy eyed and stuff. And so they told us, you know, I was there with my friend Jeff Good, another photographer, and uh, they told us uh, you can't take pictures of the patients here, just only the backs of their heads. And I said, well, that's what we want. Backs their heads while the mutants are on stage and the cramps are on stage. That's what we want, really. So uh, the mutants had played, uh, and uh, Jeff and I, you know, taking a break. Cramps are going on next. So Jeff says, hey, let's go smoke a joint. All right, well, let's get out of here. So we opened up one of the gates and went outside. was smoking a joint out there, and I had left the gate open, and two people go running out into the field in the woods <laughs> to patients. <laughs> Oh, gosh, man, what are we going to do? So, as soon as we go back in, I tell one of the guards, look, we went outside to smoke a cigarette. And I left the gate open, and these, so you can still see them. They're way out there in the field and everything, running around with their hands up the air and stuff. He says, oh, he said, don't worry. He said, there's nowhere for them to go. He says, uh, we're going to be serving dinner in a little bit, so they'll be coming back. <laughs> <laughs> tell, tell everybody who Randy Bachman was. Okay, okay. Well, we, we, like I said, when I first got here, I made friends with all the photographers I met. And there was this little short guy I met at Led Zeppelin concert, okay, uh, at the Day on the Green. And uh, and so we're standing it, it, at the Day on the Green. You could basically be in the backstage area looking across the stage, but you really weren't on stage. So it looked like, you know, so if you took pictures from that perspective, there you had uh, Robert Plant up there with all the crowd behind him wearing uh, nurses do it better, you know. And there's Randy standing beside me taking pictures. That's how I got to know him and everything. And so we became good friends. And his his parents had built him an apartment near their right next to their house, so which was minimal miniature size. You know, everything was smaller and chairs and everything like that. And uh, he would come... You know, I lived in North Beach there, so he would uh, drop by, and uh, his car, he had little wooden blocks on it for the pedals, so he could reach the pedals, and they gave him a cushion to put on a chair so he could scoot as, scoot the chairs close and be able to drive around. He would come to concerts and bring a little stool, step stool sometimes, so he could shoot, shoot the concerts and everything. Randy was an endearing character. He was a rascal, and he was a and and he was a piss poor photographer. And and, and, and I, I say that as author of his book, Photo Pass. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he you know he was scared of Jim Marshall, you know, and I introduced <laughs> him to Jim at the Bammies, you know, the first Bammies they had, because I was uh, Bam Magazine hired me to take pictures of Jim taking pictures of people backstage. And so I said, Randy, come here. No, no, I don't want to meet him. I don't want to meet him. So I got them together and I took a picture of them together. So, and they were friends after that. Another one, another one, Roger Rusmar. He was scared of Jim. He was because so, Jim had put it, pulled his gun out on him one time. Well, Roger so was, was a bit of a pussy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know, you you bring his name up and I think of him wearing that dumb light contraption. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I got pictures of him. <laughs> <laughs> hey, great, great lighting, but you look like a motherfucking crazy motherfucker, you know. <laughs> <laughs> One of the acts that you shot some great stuff at uh, the Mabuhay era that I, I, I've seen you post from time to time is Silvertone. Yeah, yeah. And of course, Silvertone. You, you know, I mean, you got you got the exclusive on the Silvertone stuff. It went on to become Chris Isaac. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I can remember um, uh, I took, I was in the Mabuhay Gardens taking pictures of the Avengers. And I walked outside, to, I smoked cigarettes, and I walked outside to smoke a cigarette or something, just take a break from things. And 
here walking down the street is this guy he's got his guitar over his shoulder there and uh he looks like a young elvis i mean the clothes that he was wearing and stuff and i i i see him um looking in the window there at the mabuhe guards and 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 listening to the sounds and he says says who is that guy on bass and i said well it's, it's jimmy wilsey and everything he says you know he says I, i'm i'm chris chris isaac from stockton california just moved here and i'm putting together a band and he pulled out his little notebook and showed me the songs he had written and everything so when they take a break can you bring him out here so i can talk to him this is so i went and got hey jimmy come on out here guy wants to talk to you and everything and that's how they met up you introduced chris to jimmy yeah yeah fantastic <laughs> and then uh as years go on he had his band playing they were playing in little clubs and record companies were shopping around you know coming to the shows and stuff and uh and we had i remember we go to his house he lived out in the avenues and we went to chris's house wait he lived in a little basement apartment of this house and remember going in there and there was no room to sit i mean he had a little hot plate to make beans and rice on and he had taken a um taken a, a pole and put it above his bed there and put all his clothes and all, he had only thrift store clothes and so you had to go underneath the clothes to lay in the bed i mean there was no room in there at all so we basically had to stand outside and, and talk and everything you know and so the 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 story I, I heard is, well, that I remember and everything is that record companies really were after him. And then um, finally, you know, because the band was named Silvertone after Silvertone Guitar, Sears and Roebuck put out. And uh, so like I said, he didn't have anything. Uh, he's a poor guy. And the record companies came and said, all right, we want to sign you, but we don't want to sign your, man, your band. And he, he said, no, it's, it's me and the band or nothing. You know, so then I think it was Warner Brothers said, well, okay, well, we'll change the name to Chris Isaac instead of Silvertone. You know, so that's that's the story I heard and everything. So, but uh, I, I thought it was very, very gracious of him to go with him and the band, not just him. You know, like I said, he didn't have any money. He's always had a very specific vision of what he wanted to do. Yes. And he sought out people who would help him do that rather than direct him somewhere else yeah uh and and that fits with what i mean but was was he as much fun to hang out with back in those days because uh, he is the most fun guy in the world he, he is but he doesn't drink and doesn't smoke and uh when they came to dc uh uh they came to dc and played at the 9 30 club and this friend of mine uh who owned this limousine service he said man he said i'd like to invite the whole band back to my house and we'll have a little party all right so i, I told all the guys i said sure we'll go so uh, he had limos set up to take them over there and bring them back to their hotel and everything so we all go over there and like i said it's probably about three in the morning or something like that and i'm there hanging out with jimmy wilsey and everybody we're smoking cigarettes and and drinking beer and then all of a sudden chris is not around and then we hear somebody in the backyard with a weed eater going around <laughs> cutting the grass at 3 30 in the morning we look at there. there's chris out there what are you doing chris he said well i'm not into smoke i didn't want to be in a room with all those smoky cigarettes and and you guys are drinking beer and everything so i just he needed some yard work done so i thought i'd get out here and use a weed eater out here <laughs> now he's a classic guy i mean very uh very different than you know because usually everybody smokes cigarettes and drinks beer you know but he didn't do that you know so that was his thing so uh, he's always been a very very you know directed narrow focus kind of guy and that it, it, it's uh you know he's collected those people around him who support him in that and, and you know uh, i i just i've enjoyed the, those guys as much as anybody i've uh, that have been around the scene right oh and jimmy we'll see on guitar oh my gosh i mean he he made that sound he made that sound oh no there. question you know that uh you know wicked game is all yes. Jim. Yes. yeah yeah i asked kenny johnson the drummer if that was his hi-hat on the bridge uh-huh and because i know they they go into composite recordings right and they have a bunch of people playing drums on those tracks and, <laughs> and, you know so uh he said 
Joel, it's not as simple as that. <laughs> yeah, man. They were they were a good band. Like I said, and, and it was and the Avengers were a good band. I mean, Jimmy was a great musician. He really was. Also SVT. SVT with Jack Cassidy on there. Oh, that Paul, kid Brian Marnell was oh. a, he was a natural. He he was the real deal. And, and again, you know, another victim of drugs. Yeah, yeah, too much heroin, you know. Well, I, I had my own problem with heroin too. You know, well, I'm glad that, you survived. Shit. That, yeah. That's why that's why I left in '85. I tried to kill myself, and by Odin and the uh, bass player from Tommy Two Tones saved my life and called the paramedics, and they shot me up with Narcon three times to bring me out of it. And um, so back then, what they did, they uh, they took me to the hospital, and then they uh, after a couple hours, they released me, and they gave me the paperwork. <laughs> Be careful on future heroin injections. You know, <laughs> that's all they did back then. So I, I had tried to kick it. Been the Haight Ashbury Free Clinic. You know, I've been on it for like a, a five, on and off it for five or six years. And so I, um, like I said, I, I hated the way I'd become. I looked in the mirror, I didn't like myself anymore, and said, "Okay, I'm just gonna get out of here." And so that didn't happen. So then I called my mom up, who's a she was a nurse and I called my mom and says, mom, I have a problem. I need some help. And she says, well, you come back here. We're going to take care of you. And I'm thinking, well, they're going to put me in rehab and stuff like that. So I get off the plane, dope sick. They pick me up at the airport, take me home. And my mom says, we're not going to any rehab. You get a cold Turkey at home with nothing. You know, if you really want to do this, <laughs> she says, I got IV solutions to hook you up. So, you know, but you're going to go through hell for three or four days. And I did, but I wanted to kick. And so, haven't looked back since. <laughs> no, no, no rehab, no NA, nothing like that. No, I went to a couple uh, meetings here in DC area, and I just thought these people. Oh, you've been clean for a week, two. I mean, I've been clean longer than that. You know, I said just you know, I did it all on my own. You know, my my thing wasn't my weakness was heroin. It wasn't anything else. It wasn't alcohol or anything else. But that was my my downfall. You know. And uh, so I had to like just sort of step back and, and start all over again. And that's why I moved from Roanoke up to D.C. and started doing um, doing the uh, you know politicians and stuff like that. I, I got my first job at the local newspaper here and uh, started freelancing for them. And then within two weeks, they hired me as a staff photographer. Alexander Gazette was which was the oldest uh, daily newspapers. George Washington used to advertise in it back then. So. <laughs> <laughs> so then I went on to the Pentagon, started working at the Pentagon. Um, my friend was leaving a job there, Tom Horan, photographer. Uh, he got me a job at the Alexander Gazette, and he said, I'm leaving this. I'm going to Army Times. They're going to need a photographer. So here, come up and see this guy. And uh, so I walk in the door with my portfolio, and the editor says, are you Chester Simpson? I said, yeah. He says, you're hired. I said, you haven't even looked at my work. He said, we, we, we've heard about Tom, Thomas talked to you up. You're hired. You know, I said, all right, at least look at my work. So he did and everything. So I was working as a contract photographer for the military, going to the Pentagon press conferences, uh, going Another to the Army. defense department vendor. <laughs> <laughs> going, going to I'm surprised we can keep track of all that money. <laughs> I know. And, and, you know, we'll see what it was. They had this publication called the Pentagram. Okay, which was the Army newspaper to Pentagon. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so uh, I was the uh, photographer on that and became director of photography and stuff. And I would use Army soldiers. I would train them on going to take pictures and interviewing people because so, a lot of them, they would have to like ask some questions and stuff like that. So I did that and uh, everybody's happy. You know, I worked out of a military base, Fort McNair and Fort Myer. And uh, the Gulf War was about ready to start up, and these soldiers I had trained to take pictures, they were sending them over there. So I went to the colonel and said, colonel, I said, this is a great opportunity for me to go over there. I've trained these soldiers. Let me go over. Well, I can't. You're a civilian. I said, well, there's a wheel. There's a way. And then uh, about two weeks later, he comes back in my office, and he says, here, call this lady at the USO. And so I called her up. He says, they use photographers on tours. So I called her up. And she says, I'm real busy. Can you call me back in a couple of days? So I called her back a couple of days. She said, yeah, what do you want? And I said, well, I'm a photographer. You know, that's good. We have photographers and everything. And she says, I'm real busy. I says, 
I said, look, I'd like to come by your office and just show you my portfolio. You know, and she's, I'm busy now. I don't, I don't have time. Said, All right. So I sent her a postcard of Iggy Pop with a chair on his head. Oh, that's and a I, great shot. <laughs> I know that shot. And and I, I think Ed Perlstein's in the frame taking a photo. Yes, yes. <laughs> so she got the postcard. She called me up. Did you do this? And I said, yeah, I told you I used to freelance for Rolling Stone magazine. She said, can you get your portfolio and be over here in an hour? I said, sure. And I had to pick up my wife and my little baby, my, my son, Daniel, and uh, who's like one year old. And we go to USO and I sit there and I show her my portfolio. And she says, she, she, this is great work. She says, we hire photographers to go on tours. She said, would you like to go, uh, go to Egypt in two weeks for Latoya Jackson? I said, sure. You know, so, uh, all right. So next thing I know, I'm flying from Dulles Airport all the way to Cairo, Egypt. and and uh, I get there and I check into my hotel room. I don't know where the USO people are or anything. And then all of a sudden, a little note gets slid under my door that night saying we're having a meeting the next day in the, uh, down in the lobby. I go down there and I meet everybody, introduce myself and stuff. And, you know, I'm thinking uh, Egypt, the pyramids, all that stuff. Wow, they get to see this stuff. Uh, and they're telling us where the tour is going to go in the South and Sinai Peninsula and stuff. And, and uh, so I said, well, are, are we going to get to see the pyramids? Oh, no, we don't have time to see the pyramids. I said, you know what would really make a great shot is Latoya Jackson on a camel with the pyramids in the background and her dancers around it. You know, And the State Department lady was listening in on all this stuff. And the guy from the U.S. said, man, I just don't think we have time to do that. So, all right, whatever. You know, I'm there. So we take off on our tour bus and we go around to the Sinai Peninsula, and we have multinational peacekeeping forces there. So you have you have British people, uh, British soldiers. Uh, you have Italian soldiers. You have Danish soldiers. Uh, uh, soldiers in the Netherlands there. Uh, all peacekeepers there. And so Latoya Jackson gets up on stage and lip syncs to her songs. Okay. I was just thinking, you know. We have, uh, and and we're going to, uh, the USO sends Latoya Jackson. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, and she had her husband with her, who was her manager, you know, who's real jerk, you know. So anyway, we we do these these shows and everything. And, of course, at the multinational peacekeeping uh, camp there, every country had their own little bar. So <laughs> after the show was over, Latoya Jackson signed a few autographs and posted for a few pictures and then got on the tour bus and then wanted to go. Well, we had gone to the little bars like the Danish guy. Hey, you got to come have, have a, a shot of at our bar. Oh, you know, and there's come and get us. I got to get back on the tour bus. Latoya wants to go. Oh, great. So we have a two hour drive back to our hotel. But uh, we made it back and. Uh, we did some more shows around there. We see we had air bases in the desert over there too, and uh, the Egyptians didn't know it. The Egyptian government knew we did, but this was a place so we could refuel the jets. Okay, coming from America, going over to Saudi Arabia. So we did shows there. And I walked around the camps, took pictures and stuff like that. But like I said, all she did was lip sync to her songs, Michael Jackson songs, and because uh, everybody knew she was lip syncing, it was freaking sad. And she was getting real, you know, not very agreeable and stuff. She was fighting with her husband. And uh, so the last, you know, this is Christmas Eve. You know, we're going to go to the uh, to the embassy. They want Latoya to come over there. And uh, and uh, so we went over to the embassy and stuff. And they had a little Christmas tree. Some people took pictures of her with Christmas tree and stuff. And then they said, uh, we have got... Uh, you guys a bus to go on. We're going to take you to the pyramids so you can see the pyramids. Okay. Oh, wow. Great. We all hop on the bus and they had, they put us on this bus where the windows are tinted. Okay. So nobody can look in at us. And they took us up there and they said, all right, the State Department says, we're going to go over there and the lady is going to hold the line so you guys can go ahead and go walk right into the pyramid. Okay. And so Jack, her husband, is all excited. We're all excited. And Latoya says, you know, I better stay on the bus. I'm probably going to get mobbed by my fans. And then so her husband said, yeah, go ahead. Stay here. <laughs> so we all left the bus, went inside the pyramids, and then came out 
outside, and they were running around climbing up the pyramids where you're not supposed to do that, but we did it anyway. Climbed up the pyramids a little bit, and then uh, it's all right, time to get back on the bus. So I got back on the bus, and the State Department lady says, we're going to go up on this little hill there where I have some camels, uh, some guys with camels, and we've arranged to do the shot that you want to do with the toy Jackson on camels and the pyramids in the background. So the sun is starting to go down, so we go there, and we do the shot. We get her out of the bus because nobody's there except for the camel drivers, and we do the shot and everything with the pyramids and stuff. And then um, we get back on the bus, and the State Department lady says, we've had such a great time with you guys, so we're going to take everybody out to dinner tonight. And uh, Latoya says, well, you know, just take me by the hotel and leave me there because I'm, I'm sure I'm going to get mobbed by my fans at the restaurant and just mess things up. So we just took her back to the Hilton Hotel and dropped her off. And But we has, had some great people on the tours. And, you know, what is what is so special is every Christmas and every Thanksgiving, I would always be going on a tour with somebody, you know, whether it's Billy Joel to, to Germany or, or Hootie and the Blowfish or Blues Traveler. And everybody is so appreciative of seeing these soldiers there, you know, looking out for us. We went to Bosnia. We went to Somalia. Uh, Clint Black to Somalia, country artist. We did a lot of country artists, too, and everything. These soldiers were so appreciative. We took B.B. King to Bosnia. And it was a two-week tour. And uh, we, we had a tour bus and stuff like that. And what a gracious man. I mean, yeah, he, he would stand there and pose. For every last photograph with the soldiers and sign every last autograph. What in Tuzla, Bosnia, he was there for two and a half hours after the show because the line was really long. But what a gracious man, signed every last autograph and stuff. We were in Maybe a military. Never forgot his time behind a mule in front of a plow. Yeah, he's, yep. well, he's I mean, a very grateful man all his life. Yeah, yeah, and he would. We would be going. Uh, I remember we were in the airport. We we met him in Germany, and then uh, we uh, we took a C one thirty out of Germany and flew flew down to uh, Bosnia that way. But when we were in the airport, so this lady comes. Oh, baby, can I get your autograph? Can I get a photograph? And he says, Yes, ma'am, you can. You know, and then he said, Chester, he says, these people. These people have been supporting me all my life and everything. They love my music and everything. And I said, well, how do you keep playing so many shows all over the world and everything? You're always busy. I mean, I remember I was at the, uh, he did a press conference at the, uh, at the embassy, Soviet embassy in San Francisco after he did that tour in Soviet Union. And they had shots of Stolish Naya vodka we drank <laughs> a day. But anyway, Bibi says, well, you know, Chester, he says, I've been touring for so many years. He says, I got kids scattered throughout the United States. Yeah, he, he sure says, does. <laughs> he says, and I claim them all. Okay, I claim them all. <laughs> and while we we're in Tusla, Bosnia, there was this little girl who said, I, I got to go see my grandfather. It's Vivi up there. You, it's, your, it's your grandma? Yeah. So he's, oh, yeah, this is my granddaughter, you know. <laughs> but what a gracious man. You know, what a, everybody I've been on tour with was so gracious and appreciative of what, what our country was doing, you know. Yeah, it's hard not to be. Yeah. Yeah. And and that was that's been always been a special thing in my heart, that, you know, and being so lucky. And my mother told me, she, she said, God saved you from heroin and everything. So you have to give back. And then um, so they were real happy when I started doing USO tours and stuff. Man, it's great to uh, uh, catch up with you. It's uh, been a long time. But you're deeply Im 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 embedded in my recollections of my youth, you know, because <laughs> when I when I when I draw back pictures from those days you're there <laughs> well I, you know i remember i got pictures of you at the sex pistols show you know oh my god you know like i said we were we were there at the time and place great music all the time it was just like sometimes you had to go there was like three or four things going on in one night you know maybe go there and catch the first set of somebody and then go to the stone and and uh somebody was playing over there you know and, it just, no, there was lots going on, and also there were places for us to do our work. Yep. You know, it wasn't like ten years before when there wasn't any place for you to get your photos printed. Yeah, you know, and so we were—that was a real, um, a real golden age. That that seventy-five to eighty-five, and and uh, kind of like the 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 whole peak of, of the whole rock movement. We had so much going on in San Francisco, but there was just this steady procession. 
of things from around the world that just came through town and just one un, uh, unending uh, a parade of, of, of fascinating stuff. There's no question about that. And one, one of the best shows that I was lucky to go to was The Last Waltz. That was the best uh, night of music I ever saw. Yes, yes. I, 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 I mean, all those people on stage, oh my gosh, you know. I, I didn't get to go backstage, but I was, you know. Oh, I, the, I did. Yeah, did you just uh, say go to the nose and, room? And they had, they, yeah, they had, yeah. Pete Barsotti had painted a room all white, <laughs> and he'd gone and got dime store masks and cut the noses off them and put the noses <laughs> from these masks around the walls of this room. He had a tape loop going. <laughs> yeah, no, there wasn't any of that stuff going around backstage. No, it was, a, 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 but the music was fantastic. And, and I, I, I was out by the sound booth uh, watching Van Morrison and, and Neil Diamond was standing next to me and he had these aviator shades on trying to look <laughs> as cool as he could. Uh-huh. He was just sitting there and you could just see the sweat on his brow. Like <laughs> he hadn't played in front of an audience that wasn't his people since Solitary Man or something. Uh-huh. And he was just watching Van Morrison just destroy the place. And he was going to go up and, and play his one sappy number. I almost <laughs> felt sorry for the guy. Well, I always wondered why he was in there. I mean, Bobby know, Robinson and him were uh, doing a record together, and they and they had um, shared drug preferences. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, Van Morrison was—he was kicking up his heels, you know. Oh, it was the best Van Morrison yeah. performance ever, ever, <laughs> ever. And 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 he and Richard Manuel did that uh, uh, duet on tour, Lure Lure Lee, that just blew the place apart, and 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 they kept pushing each other, you know, on each chorus, like, wow, no, that was a great night. Uh, Muddy Waters was great. Clapton was great. Yeah. Uh, Neil Young was great. Johnny Mitchell was great. Uh, Ronnie Hawkins was great. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, by the time you got to Dylan, it was just like, you know, well, that was the expected wedding cake that they were going to push out at the end. And, and there he was. Uh, I shall be released. I still have uh, Ken Reagan's picture of that. Mm-hmm. Up on my wall, which has Ringo on drums and Ronnie Wood on guitar, and all these people that you didn't even know were there uh, came out for that. It's like, okay, it's like three thirty in the morning, and the audience will not stop applauding. They're no. just demanding an encore. And what happens? Man, the band comes out, no guests, right? And Levon just tears a new one on yeah. "Baby Don't Do It." <laughs> Oh, man, you know. <laughs> See, we were there. It was we a classic there. concert, you know. I love music. I, I never, I can't be a musician. I can't sing worse shit, but at least I can take pictures. That's <laughs> you certainly can, Jasper. You certainly can. <laughs> Yeah. 